Uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, we're going to start in verses 14 and then move all the way to the end of the chapter. But uh, let's start off in verses 14 to 17 this morning. The writer of Hebrews tells us, Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Father, we come before you this morning, and uh, Father, we're broken people. Uh, We are sinful people. Uh, We are people like Esau who have fallen short. Um, Father, I thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, that forgives us of our sins. I thank you that we have an unconditional promise of eternal life, that we can come to you just as we are. And yet, Father, I pray this morning, even as we open your word, Lord, I pray that uh, this morning, in the midst of a weekend and and the pace of life, Lord, I pray that you would just slow this morning down. I pray that you'd slow me down. Uh, I pray that you would uh, interrupt our thoughts this morning um, with a fresh insight as to who you are. Father, I pray that you would even show us where our picture of you is slanted or wrong, and that you'd give us a fresh and a more uh, clear sense of exactly who you are. Father, I pray that you would not just show yourself, but that you would move into our lives and that you'd open our hearts, that you'd open our minds, and that you'd move in ways beyond our anticipation. Uh, Father, I pray that you would speak in a powerful way this morning, uh, that you'd use this passage in our lives, and that you would come uh, in yet another morning, um, and that you'd allow it to be not just another morning. Uh, Father, I pray that you would come and that you would move in in really unique ways. I pray that this morning might even be a pivot for some of us in our lives and that for some of us, we might see you for the first time in ways we've never seen you. Uh, For some of us, Lord, I pray that our hearts might be even grieved if we've seen you wrong, if we've made you something than you are. Father, I pray that you'd allow your word to speak clearly to us, that you would teach us, that you would direct us, that you would challenge us, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. All right, within the last couple of weeks, uh, some of our interns here in our college ministry at Grace Bible, who will leave them nameless at this point, have decided to open an all-out prank war on our college pastoral staff, particularly uh, Madden Morton and myself. And so then a couple of weeks ago, a, a, a live, apparently non-venomous snake was let loose in my office, all right? Uh, I came in on a Monday morning after a long weekend and found a snake and uh, weeds and grass for that snake to consume in my office. Wonderful, right? Great Monday morning. Uh, if that wasn't worse, what got even worse was uh, about a week and a half ago, uh, my counterpart, Matt Morton, walked into his office on a Thursday morning and found live mice loose in his office, all right? Thankfully, these pranksters left notes to let us know what was happening before we stepped in our office, but for me, there wasn't a smell, but for Matt, there was a horrific smell of multiple live mice running loose, all right? Now, uh, these interns knowing us and hearing stories from us all over the time know that I... Uh, despise snakes probably more than any other animal, all right? Uh, They also know that Matt Morton despises mice more than any other animal, all right? So they got us good, they got us well, but what they didn't calculate and what they didn't realize, particularly with snakes or even mice, is that they're not necessarily always trapped within an office, all right? They can get out of those offices, and especially in the case of mice, they can actually get out, infiltrate walls, infiltrate roofs, and you can have, with breeding, a mice infestation that can ransack our church, all right? Miscalculation number one. Miscalculation number two was they didn't know exactly who they were messing with, all right? Um, In the midst of uh, uh, working with these guys and girls, uh, there's a lot of friendship. There's a lot of kinship. I I consider a lot of our interns family. Uh, And yet, at the end of the day, there's still a reality that we are their boss, all right? Now, 
Um, let me kind of, for you guys, they're going to graduate at some point, maybe even this spring. Imagine yourselves, if you will, imagine yourself taking a job come August with Shell Oil. Or let's say you take an accounting job with PricewaterhouseCooper. Now, imagining in month eight of your first full-time employment, possibly with any kind of group, your first maybe even real job, imagine in month eight you decide that what you want to do is pull a prank on your boss, all right? So you decide in month eight of your full-time job with PricewaterhouseCooper that you're going to let live mice loose in your office, in his office. Can you imagine how that would go, right? Something tells me you would be fired before you knew it, right? That doesn't go well, right? At some level, I think within our church setting, there's something that exists that's not present in PricewaterhouseCooper, all right? There is a respect level of authority, but there is also a unfamiliarity with authority. There, there is a moving not beyond a certain line within a relationship, all right? Now, I told you guys, as we view our interns, they are family, all right? We love them to death, all right? And yet, in, a, in an employment setting, in a business setting, one might not make certain assumptions about a relationship with a superior boss that we might make in a church setting, right? And in particular, I think the miscalculation these interns made was they assumed that their familiarity with their bosses allowed them to broach lines and to take things and to move situations beyond what was appropriate, all right? They didn't have the correct respect for the distinction that exists between me and an intern, all right? Now, I'm not trying to rail on them. I think it's a great example, though, because it's not just in a church setting. I think for us, that same dynamic actually occurs with God in our spiritual lives, all right? For those of us in the North American uh, evangelical church that all you guys exist in, I think for a lot of us, there is great comfort, there is great confidence to approach Jesus. Christ. We know he is incarnated. We know that he came on the earth to identify with us. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He's experienced everything that we've ever walked through. There's a familiarity with Jesus Christ. I think even for some of us, there's not just a familiarity, but even for some of us in a lot of the worship songs, not that we sang this morning, but a lot of the worship songs you may have heard and that you may hear that are often quite popular, it's as if us and Jesus are in some kind of divine romance, all right? It's as if there's some kind of buddy-buddy kind of relationship we have with Jesus Christ. We're familiar with him. We know we can approach him. And yet, I think in the midst of that familiarity, I think sometimes we begin to miss exactly who Jesus Christ is. Jesus was incarnated because he had to stand as our substitute because of the wrath of God had to be poured out. And Jesus was going to stand in our place. And though Jesus comes and he's incarnate and identifies with us, though he loves us, though he's merciful to us, he's merciful to us in the light of the fact that God is holy, God is just, God is a God of wrath. And as we look at Hebrews chapter 12 this morning, I think Hebrews 12, as we end this chapter, is going to kind of bring an emphasis back to our picture of who God is. I think it's going to kind of straighten out. It's going to kind of balance our view of who God is because I think for a lot of us, we're quite comfortable. We're quite familiar with Jesus Christ. I think sometimes that familiarity can cause us to approach him. It can cause us to consider him outside of and incorrectly with exactly who he is. He's a God who's just, who's holy, who's wrathful. And unless we understand that, we'll never fully understand his love and his mercy. So watch with me where Hebrews takes us this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and on. Really, we're going to see a lot of the themes that have been woven throughout this book really kind of culminated and kind of wrapped up here in the last part of chapter 12. The writer tells us, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. The writer of Hebrews gives them two basic commands at the top of this passage, simply to pursue peace and to pursue sanctification. Sanctification is one of these big theological words that we throw out, but what in the world does it mean? Sanctification essentially is this. It means it's just the process by which you and I are walking out in which we are becoming more and more in the image of Jesus Christ. 
Sanctification is simply a process in which we're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, and in particular, more and more like his holiness. That is, people watch us as they see our lives, we're becoming to be more and more in the, in the resemblance or more and more in the likeness of Jesus Christ. In particular, sanctification highlights being set apart, being made distinct, being made holy, not for common use, not for common purpose, but for distinct or set apart or holy purposes. So sanctification means, but notice why ought we to do it? He's going to give us three basic reasons for why they ought to pursue sanctification. And again, this has kind of been the, the real theme of motivation has been woven throughout this great book of Hebrews. For people who are under all kinds of pressure, they need all kinds of motivation to continue to hang with and continue to represent and walk with Jesus Christ. Notice, in a sense, the three reasons he gives them. One, he says, pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Simply put, if you guys remember a couple weeks ago as we walked through Hebrews chapter 11, he gave us uh, some examples of great men and women of the faith, men and women who've walked with God, who believed great things and saw God do great things. And the result of that was their great faith gave them a witness before God and before men of their faith and of who God was. And he says that you are to pursue sanctification because your pursuit of sanctification gives the world a picture as to who God is and what God is doing. Second thing he says, notice in verse 16, uh, verse 15, he says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it, many be defiled. The second reason he gives them to pursue sanctification is that your pursuit of sanctification impacts not the world necessarily, but also the community within the church. That your pursuit of sanctification gives not just the world a witness as to who God is, but it has a huge impact on the community that you're walking your faith out with. And that as you pursue sanctification, you can either encourage or you can discourage everyone else around you. And and so he says, it's not just in light of the world, but it's also in light of the church that you're to pursue sanctification. And really the last reason he gives in this section in verses 16 and 17 really is is a dominant theme that's been walking out throughout this book so far. And it's the theme of inheritance. I think really what the writer of Hebrews is going to start us out with is the simple challenge that you and I are to value our inheritance. But what is that inheritance? He's going to give us an example in the Old Testament to highlight what the inheritance is and why we're to cling to it. He says in verse 16, watch out that there be, there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. <laughs> What's the writer of Hebrews referring to? Some of you guys may know the story uh, between Esau uh, and Jacob. Uh, these two brothers who came and, and, and they came and since uh, Esau was the firstborn, his brother was the younger. And, and as the firstborn, if you know Jewish history, the firstborn has unique privileges and unique rights. To be the firstborn son meant that you not just had opportunity to rule and be the head of the household once your father passed away. But when he passed away, you also got a double portion of the inheritance. So you got double of your father's wealth than your younger brother got. All right, but it wasn't just material and, and about prosperity. The, the other privilege that came with the firstborn son, as you look to the Old Testament and through the, the nation of Israel's existence, was that the firstborn son was also the one who the covenant promises passed down to. And so you see from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, that the covenants of the Old Testament, the promises of God to the nation of Israel are being passed down through those firstborn sons who are heirs, who are going to be the receivers of the promises. And then as you watch through the Old Testament for the nation of Israel to be the firstborn son brought you unique status and privilege. It wasn't just that you were a son, but as being a son, you got something on top of that. But notice what happened to Esau as the firstborn son. He was going to be a son, but as the firstborn son, he got something in addition that the writer of Hebrews will refer to as his birthright. And it is his birthright that he gives away for what? 
simply for a common meal. Some of you guys may remember the story that he's basically hungry and, and his brother makes a deal, kind of almost deceives him a little bit and his father. And in that deal basically allows Esau to get a meal. And for the meal, essentially what happens is that he gives the birth right away and that he sells it off. In many ways, really what happens with Esau is that he becomes a prototype of all who throw away the heavenly reality for the earthly one. Esau is going to make a choice for instant gratification. He wants a meal, and to get the meal, he sells the birthright off, all right? And he sells it off in light of what is just simply present and what is simply earthly. He forsakes it and forgets a future inheritance to come just so that he can get a meal today. And what's really interesting as you watch that story is that he makes a a choice of instant gratification, but it's going to have irrevocable consequences. He's going to make a choice that is about instant gratification, but it's going to have irrevocable consequences. Notice what the writer Hebrews says. He says that even though afterwards he sold it, even though he he comes seeking uh, that blessing back with tears, God is not going to grant it to him. And even though Esau desires it, and even though he's crying and he's beseeching the Lord uh, greatly, God doesn't provide it to him. Esau is going to make a choice about instant gratification and it's going to have irrevocable consequences. Well, what were those consequences and what did Esau lose out on? Esau doesn't lose out on being a child of God. He doesn't lose out on being a son, but what he loses out on is the privileges that come with that firstborn son status. All right. And in many ways, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews. This is a theme that's been reoccurring over and over that's being woven throughout the book. That for those who are going to press on, for those who are under pressure, if they'll willingly walk with Jesus Christ, if they'll willingly continue to pursue their sanctification, they won't miss out on their inheritance. It's a theme that's been woven throughout the book. Uh, You guys might remember back in chapter 3, back in chapter 2, we've been talking about the themes back in chapter 6 and in 10, this theme of inheritance. That for you and I, the moment we trust Jesus Christ, we are promised eternal life. Our sins are forgiven and we're promised that we'll be with Jesus Christ in eternity forever. But also at that moment, we're granted an inheritance, an inheritance that we actually continue to claim and hold on to, not unconditionally, but conditionally. And it's in addition to eternal life. It's something in addition to that. And for those of us who walk faithfully, for those of us who choose to walk and to pursue our sanctification, we will not miss out on that. And the, the, the reality, though, is as we, for some of us walk through, as we look through the book of Hebrews, we've been seeing this theme over and over again, that you and I, as people of God, as those who've trusted in Jesus Christ, can miss out on an inheritance irrevocably if we fail to walk with Jesus Christ. Remember here in chapter 12, he says that Esau found no place for repentance. He was rejected. He wasn't rejected from his unconditional status within the nation of Israel, but he was re- rejected from getting to see a fulfillment of God's promises in his lifetime. In fact, we see this theme over and over throughout the book of Hebrews. You guys remember back to Hebrews chapter 6, we found uh, a person who had partaken of the Holy Spirit, who tasted the good gifts of God, and then if he had uh, forsaken Jesus Christ, it was going to be impossible to renew them again to repentance. Not about heaven and hell, but about something different in the present. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, we found for the person who has high-handed defiant sin, that person will find there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Not that they won't get heaven and eternal life, but there's no, there's no payment, there's no means to escape the inevitable consequences of that choice. What the writer of Hebrews is trying to press upon us is though that, though that we receive eternal life absolutely unconditionally, the choices we make and the way that we live has, matters today. It matters not just today in our lives now, but it will matter in in the future as well. It does not impact heaven and eternal life, but it impacts the inheritance that we're going to receive. And this is the theme that's been woven throughout the book. The question is, why would God do that? 
Why would God grant us unconditional promises, but then grant us some conditional ones that our choices of instant gratification could lead to irrevocable consequences? What kind of God is there that will speak to us and will lead us, and then if we choose to forsake him, we may not find an opportunity to be brought back to repentance? What kind of God wouldn't have given Esau back his birthright? What kind of God wouldn't have allowed him in the midst of tears to to turn around and to see these things brought back to fruition? Really, as the writer of Hebrews goes on in verses 18 and on, what we're going to see is that it's not just that we're to value our inheritance in the way that we live, but ultimately we're to value our inheritance because we have a holy God. In particular, I think as we look at Esau and we look at the story, I just want to ask you this morning, uh, I think for all of us, I think especially in our culture, uh, we value that which is fast and we value that which is present and that which is pleasant. All right, you and I live in a culture in which everything is fast-paced and we can have everything that we want now. And so I think for a lot of us, we struggle with choices of instant gratification. Why would God call us to things and tell us that he wants to grant us things, but we don't get to see them immediately? God told Abraham, I want to give your family and your descendants a land. I want to give you hundreds of descendants and I want to give, use your family to bless the nations. We don't see all of those things come about to fruition until Jesus Christ shows up. And even at that moment, we still don't see all of those things brought to fruition until he returns a second coming. Much of what God is wanting to do in our lives doesn't happen instantly. Much of what he's intending to do, much of what he wants to grant us, it doesn't happen instantly. And so we are those people who are having to wait. And the question is, how do we make those choices that are about the instant? How do we make those choices about the present? What are those things that we grab at times that are instantly about gratification? And the reality is for many of us, those choices lead to irrevocable consequences as well. For a lot of us, we're making choices about our purity right now. We're making choices in relationships. We're making choices of what we look at online. For some of us, we're going to be making choices now and we'll be making choices to come once we have a job as to what we're going to do with our finances. And the question is whether it's our purity or our finances or even the gifts God has given us, how do we use those? How do we satisfy the very desires God has given us, especially if at times it doesn't seem like the choice of that, which is instantly gratifying, is ultimately what he has for us. I think as we look through the book of Hebrews, really what the writer is calling them to over and over again is this. Don't choose that which is instantly gratifying, especially if it's contrary to what God is wanting and calling us to do. And if we make those choices and we move contrary to what he has for us, we're going to miss out on and sometimes face irrevocable consequences. Not consequences that impact eternity, but sometimes consequences that we cannot escape from in the present. God has forgiven us of our sins and he will always, uh, we will always have status. We will always have the opportunity to approach him. But sometimes our choices really do have an impact in the present. I've sit with people in my office all the time and their choices are having irrevocable consequences on their lives. God doesn't call us to righteousness because he wants to take fun away. God calls us to righteousness and he calls us at times to deny ourselves and deny the present because what he's wanting to do for you and I is provide us something even better if we'll wait and to protect us from not waiting at times. And that as we struggle to wait and as we make choices sometimes that are contrary to what he has, he's, we end up landing in a place that's removed from his protection or removed from what he desires for us. In fact, what we're going to see as we move in verses 18 and 24 is God is holy. But particularly in his holiness, he's actually good as well. His holiness is good for us because in his holiness, he's calling us to experience that which is best. And he's trying to protect us from that which is not going to be the best thing in our life. Notice what happens. He's going to call us to not just value our inheritance, but he's going to call us to fear God's holiness. And he's going to take us, at least for the audience, what would have been very familiar, he's going to take them to the nation of Israel. In particular, he's going to take them to the moment that the nation of Israel received the Mosaic law. 
verses 18 to 21. It tells us, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Verses 18 and 21 talk about when the nation of Israel received the Mosaic law. It was at that mountain when God brought down the Ten Commandments to Moses that he then brought down to the nation of Israel. At that place, God had told the nation to gather there, but don't come up on the mountain and don't even touch the mountain. And if you touch the mountain, you will surely die. And in that place, it was both environmentally and experientially an incredibly terrifying moment for them. The nation of Israel and Moses even himself was absolutely terrified, incredibly fearful. I think the nation of Israel had a response to God and an awareness of God's holiness that led to a consistent experience of reverence and fear before God. And I think that reverence and fear before God that the nation of Israel had, I think on a daily basis is something that you and I, for the most part, often don't have. And as a result of that, I think sometimes we have a varied view of who God is and exactly, I think it can also struggle and uh, strangle our own spiritual lives unless we realize that God is holy. In fact, as we kind of move through, what you're going to see is that it's not just that the nation of Israel was to walk righteously, but ultimately the, the Ten Commandments as Israel received them was to bring them life. Uh, watch in Deuteronomy chapter 30. It tells us, see, I have set before you today life and prosperity, Moses tells the nation of Israel, and death and adversity. And that I command you today to love the Lord God, to walk in his ways that you may live. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, you will surely perish. Then the Old Testament, the nation of Israel realized that obedience was life and disobedience was death. It was quite literal for them that if they disobeyed the command of God to walk up and to not touch the mountain, they would have died there on the spot. But even as you walk through Deuteronomy chapter 28 to 30, sometimes that death and life is not so literal that ultimately, as the nation of Israel obeyed the command and the law of God, they experienced life. Life is to all that God intended for them to experience. And then as they walked in righteousness, they found and experienced all the blessings of God. But when they disobeyed God, when they forgot God, they ventured off and they experienced something that was far different than the life that God had for them. In fact, it was death. Sometimes literal, but more often than not figurative, as they were removed from the blessings of God and removed from the presence of God. The nation of Israel got that, all right? And I think for you and I, as we, as we come into the New Testament, I think a lot of us have missed a view of a holy God. As Jesus Christ has come incarnate, as he's come near to us, I think our view of God has been a bit shifted. And we begin to picture a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament that's different. In the Old Testament, you have a God who's angry and who's wrathful and who's always judging. And then in the New Testament, you finally have a God who's merciful, sympathetic, and understanding. And I think a lot of us have the tendency to separate into different pictures the gods of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, I think you're going to see as we move further in verses 22 and on that the writer of Hebrews is going to call you and I to also fear God. Notice uh, verse 22. If the nation of Israel feared God, then you and I ought to fear him even more, because notice what he says in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. The writer of Hebrews says that if the nation of Israel feared God, then you and I ought to fear God even more. (laughs) Because we come not to Mount uh, Sinai, but we come to Mount Zion. We come to a God who is judge. We come to a God who is righteous and, and who is not just present on a mountain, but is present in the heavens and speaking from the heavens. 
In particular, you and I don't serve and worship a God that's different in the Old Testament than the New Testament. I think by and large, I think a lot of us, as we look at the Old Testament, we've missed the fact that even in the Old Testament, God was gracious. We find uh, in Psalm 145, this kind of phrase and this verse is, is really, in a sense, a refrain throughout much of the Old Testament. Notice Psalm 145, verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's great in loving kindness. That throughout the Old Testament, God was still gracious. We see he's angry, we see he's wrathful, but we also see over and over throughout the Old Testament that he's gracious, that he's merciful, that he's slow to anger. Even the law itself that highlights the justice and the wrath of God at times was actually, the very gift of it was actually quite gracious. Imagine the nation of Israel who's been enslaved for 400 years in Egypt and they come out of that. They have no idea what God wants for their lives. They have no idea what God desires their lives to look like. And so he comes and he says, here's what life looks like. Here's what I want you guys to do. Here's where you're going to find life. The law itself was actually quite gracious and quite generous to them. Apart from the law, they would not have known in some ways who God was and actually even what God wanted from them. The law was gracious to them. And even more so, I think not only do we sometimes miss the grace of God in the Old Testament, I think sometimes we miss the wrathfulness of God even in the New Testament. And I think in particular, sometimes as we look in the New Testament, we have a picture of God who is always kind, always gracious, always identifiable. I've so, shown this picture before, but I kind of still like it. I'm going to show it again. Uh, some of you guys have seen this kind of shirt. Jesus is my homeboy. All right. Um, I think uh, originally I first saw this years and years ago at Urban Outfitters. I'm not making any comments about Urban Outfitters, but I am saying uh, that shirts like this, I, I think, highlight really not just in our secular culture, but I think sometimes even in our evangelical culture here in America, that Jesus Jesus is my buddy, <laughs> that Jesus and I are tight, and maybe Jesus and I are even in some kind of romance, uh, that there's this a familiarity, there's this, uh, and, and rightfully so, an approachability, but, but a move of Jesus off of a divine throne and right next to me in a way that I could put him on my shirt. You know, even as you think about the Old Testament, the nation of Israel wouldn't even write the name of God. <laughs> And yet you and I will put Jesus as my homeboy on our shirts, all right? Not us as in like you and I, maybe some of us are wearing that today. If so, I hope you don't feel too bad. Uh, but some of y'all may have this shirt, right? But there's, there's a familiarity with Jesus, all right? Um, and to stretch this even more ridiculously, I found this picture uh, in the light of Easter coming up. Here's Jesus riding an Easter bunny, all right? <laughs> Who's like got eggs coming out as he, as he rides them. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's going on, all right? But, but you guys laugh because it's ridiculous, right? Here's Jesus in his divinity with some kind of regal clothing, and yet he's riding a bunny, right? There's something wrong with that, right? And yet I think, I think it's a great picture, though. I think so many of us, and rightfully so, know that we can approach Jesus Christ, know that he's identified with us, know that he's sympathized with us. But I think sometimes in that familiarity, we can take Jesus off his throne, and we miss the fact that he's holy and that he's righteous. In fact, I think sometimes we get a bad first impression of Jesus, Jesus in his first coming was merciful. He came in a manger. He was humble. And yet in the midst of what we see in his first coming, some of us get a bad first impression and we miss the fact that when he returns, he's going to return incredibly different. And that his first coming is not a balanced portrayal of who Jesus is. And in his second coming, we get a, a verse like this from Revelations. It tells us, Revelations 19, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it judges and wages war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that he may strike down the nations and he will rule them. Jesus Christ came in his first coming in a manger humbly and lowly. He endured a gruesome death in which he entrusted himself and he subjected himself to the powers of human authority and human government. 
But the reality is that his second coming, he will not be suppressing himself and subjecting himself any longer to human authority. And in a sense as well, he's going to come this time to judge and to rule and to reign and all other human authorities will be crushed. In fact, this time when he comes, he won't come on a white bunny, but he'll come on a white horse, this time with a sword and not Easter eggs, right? There's something different we see in his second coming. And I think for a lot of us, we miss this portrayal of Jesus in his second coming and we get a view of Jesus and therefore a view of God that I think very much misses the boat as to who God is. God judges us. God will rule over us. And yet, because he is judge, he also cares about us. And so he sent Jesus Christ in our place to die on our behalf. And he stood where we could not stand and took the penalty that we could not bear. And he took upon himself on the cross the punishment for our sins. You and I don't see the love of God apart from seeing the wrath of God. Because we see the love of God as it's being a shelter for us from the very wrath of God. And to the extent that we see a weak view of God, a less holy and a less judging view of God is the extent that we have a very weak, loving God. God is holy and we see his love best as we see his holiness. His holiness is never compromised by his mercy and his compassion. His holiness is never compromised by his mercy and his compassion. He's slow to anger. He's merciful and he's gracious, but he's still just and he's still holy. And the reason that we have Jesus Christ coming near on our behalf is because he's so holy that he was going to bring judgment once and for all on sin. And the only way that that judgment could be escaped from is if there was one who could take our penalty, could stand in our place, and Jesus Christ did that on our behalf. The cross was not a mere example of what happens to sin. The cross was a place that we see that Jesus Christ stood on our behalf. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you do not stand and you cannot find any other shelter from the wrath and the judgment of God than Jesus. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved other than Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, I am the truth, the way, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me, Jesus says. Jesus is the only shelter from the wrath of God. And in the wrath of God and in that shelter that we find refuge under, we find the love and mercy of God poured out. And those stand right together, one by each other. And I think as we come into the New Testament, we can miss the holiness of God, and yet we see it over and over again. In fact, as we see his love poured out and portrayed, we see in that picture a statement about his holiness and his justice. God had to go to that extreme measure to send his only son, uh, his only begotten son who stood in our place and was crucified because our sin was that bad and he was that holy. And what we're going to see is that when he comes again and in his second coming, he's going to bring about an elaborate shaking of the world. Look with me, verses 25 and on. Notice what happens. It says, verse 25, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those do not escape when they refuse him, who warn them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression yet once more denotes the removing of the things which can be shaken as of created things so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Verses 25 and 28 begin to highlight exactly what Jesus Christ is going to do at his second coming. When he comes, he will come on a white horse and he will come and he'll bring justice and he'll bring about the establishment of his own kingdom and his holiness. And in doing that, he will crush all human authority. And he'll set up a kingdom just as he promised he would do all the way back in Genesis 12 to Abraham. And then we saw that story unfold throughout the, the Old Testament. And in particular, as he sets up that kingdom and as he establishes a rule, just as he promised Abraham, what we're going to see in the aftermath of that rule and fulfillment of his promises to the Old Testament patriarchs is a reestablishment of the heavens and the earth, a recreation of all things. And in that moment, he's going to shake free all that's been created. It's going to be an elaborate shaking where the only things that remain are the things that will be lasting for eternity. 
I got a great picture of this uh, a few years ago. Marcy and I and her brother took off, and we were in uh, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, we got to go and check out Hershey's uh, Amusement Park. I don't know if you guys have ever been to that amusement park. Uh, you got all the greatness of an amusement park and all the greatness of chocolate flowing through the amusement park everywhere, all right? It was like a world a dream come true for me, all right? I loved it, all right? Except the fact that I actually hate roller coasters, and in which that place, it was more hellish than heaven. But, I, but anyways, in the midst of one of these roller coasters we jumped on, it was uh, called the Dueling Dragons, all right? Uh, these two lines, and they start to do crazy turns around one another. They're coming at each other. You think you're going to hit the other, other line of, uh, of the roller coasters, and, and you kind of flip it all around. And the craziest thing through this roller coaster is it flipped you all around, spun you, was that every single thing in my brother-in-law's pockets fell out by the end of the roller coaster ride, all right? In fact, not only in particular, his fancy phone that took a great huge fall landed on concrete and was done all right that roller coaster shook everything that was not going to remain from you all right the only thing that you were left with was your clothes which thankfully you kept them on right Um, but everything that was in your pockets everything that was loose got shaken free and fell out I I think it's a great picture for what the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus Christ will do in the day that he returns he's going to bring about not just a kingdom but in the aftermath of that kingdom there's going to be a recreation of all things and in that recreation, everything will be shaken free. And the only thing that will remain is that which will remain for eternity. And, and ultimately, then he goes on and he says this, verse 27, uh, or verse 28, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, a kingdom that's going to remain, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. If Jesus Christ will one day return and set up a kingdom and bring about a recreation of all things, if that is an absolute certainty and he is a holy God and we can take it to the bank, then the question is, how do we orient our lives in the present in light of what's coming? That's the point that the writer of the Hebrews has been making all throughout this book. That's why we keep coming back to these themes. Literally, it feels like every other week. And I find myself every week feeling like I'm saying the same thing. And yet I think it could be more pertinent and more relevant to us today. In the midst of all that the present offers us, in the midst of all that the world offers us, the question is, what are we living for and what are we investing ourselves in? In the midst of the kingdom that's coming, what is our response to it? Is it a response of gratitude or a response of dismissal? As you think about the kingdom that's coming, to what extent are you certain and to what extent do you even think about it? To what extent do you see Christ in his first coming and dismiss his second coming? The extent to which we see his second coming highlights our confidence in the future and it reorients our present. The question is, what are you building and what are you investing in now and how will that impact the kingdom that's coming? I think you can build incredible careers. You can build and invest in gigantic homes. You can build a financial portfolio. The reality is one day, maybe even in the present, but for sure in the future, Christ will bring about an elaborate shaking of those things and they will all fall apart. And the question and the challenge I want to make to you guys is you guys eventually one day leave this place as you guys even leave for this summer, no matter where you're going, whether that's an internship or career, whether that's a camp, whether that's overseas, the question is no matter where you go and what kind of way are you going to impact that arena for Jesus Christ? Whether you're going into engineering, whether you're going into medicine, how are you going to impact those arenas or those industries for Jesus Christ? It's not just about the relationships you're going to have, but it's about walking in those arenas in a way that looks incredibly different from the way that the world walks. And in that, again, back to verse 14, the world gets a picture. They get to get a picture of who God is as you walk in those arenas. You guys are going to walk in arenas that I'll never be able to walk in. You're going to step into relationships that I'll never have an opportunity to do. And our great vision, our great hope for you guys as you all eventually leave this place is that you're going to step into arenas and you're going to be representatives for Jesus Christ, bringing about the kingdom of God on earth. 
bringing about an anticipation, a highlight of it, a glimpse of it, not a fulfillment of it because it won't be fulfilled until Jesus Christ returns. But you have the opportunity to bring about a glimpse of it, even in your own industries, even in your own families, even in your own callings. I don't know where God is calling you to. I don't know where you're going to be this summer. I don't know where you're going to be after graduation. But the, call, the reality is, and the question is, how are you going to begin to orient your present in light of that kingdom to come? Verses 28 and 29, what I read you guys at the beginning of this morning, is uh, two verses that have been on my heart and on my mind all year. And when we decided to kind of walk through this book for a whole year, for whatever reason, those two verses really were the ones that stood out to me more than any other. I think more than any other book in the New Testament, there's pressure upon these people. And the writer of Hebrews is, uh, is trying to call them again, remind them over and over again in the midst of pressure right now to be mindful of and to have your eyes set on what's to come later. And enduring the present sufferings, enduring the present difficulties and the present challenges with hope and with confidence for what's coming. Ultimately, even on a smaller scale, you guys are about to endure all kinds of finals, all kinds of injustices, right? Um, and the question is, will you continue to listen to Jesus Christ? I'm just joking, all right? Um, God's put you there. Walk it out faithfully, please. Walking out school is not unjust. It's not unspiritual, actually. Let me actually say that. Walking school faithfully is actually quite spiritual. Same will be with your career one day. Some of you guys are so mindful of the spiritual that you think your school career right now is absolutely unspiritual. And yet I think as you walk that faithfully out, as you pursue excellence, even in school, you're actually giving the world and your fellow students and actually a picture of who God is and how God is recreating life. And let me plead with you guys, as you do school, as you walk through the summer and, and as you eventually leave us for a career, walk those out faithfully, walk them out with passion, do them better than anyone else around you. Because as you do that, as you bring the kingdom of God presently in their midst, they're going to get a picture of all that God is going to do in the future. And that's how you represent them. That's how you walk with them. So let me pray for us this morning. Father God, I I give you great thanks um, that you've given us great confidence, great certainty as to what's coming in the future. Father, we do await that day that your son will return. And Father, we're greatly thankful that we realize that we'll be under the shelter of his wrath and that we'll have protection and we'll have refuge. Father, I pray that you would allow us to be lights on this campus and in this community and the places that you'll even take us to this summer and next year. Father, I pray that we could represent you well, that we could pursue sanctification, we could pursue a process with diligence in which we're being made more and more like you. Father, I pray that you would purify our lives. I pray that you would transform us. I pray that you would allow us to to listen to you, to be responsive to you, um, to be obedient to you. Father, I pray that you would give us a, a greater passion for the things of you that you give us greater wisdom to know how the things and the places and the calls that you've put upon our lives and the places that you've put us, how those can be impacted for your kingdom and impacted by your glory. Uh, Father, I pray that you give us great wisdom as we walk those things out and that we would serve you with gratefulness, um, that we would serve you in a way that we would highlight and have an awareness of your holiness, your justice, and your righteousness, Lord. Father, we ask you these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Thanks, guys. We'll see you guys next week.